0: Well, let's get right to it. Why don't you grab your Bible? We left off on Wednesday. We only got a few uh, verses, uh, but it was an introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And so we're just, uh, you know, lollygagging through Luke. That's our plan. It's a great Gospel. It's gonna be great to go through this book. If you turn to Luke chapter one, Last week, we uh, started our study on, uh, last Sunday, uh, the the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, Elizabeth who, um, the mom and dad of John the Baptist. Uh, talk about a spirit-filled family. You know, uh, we're gonna see that even today. Uh, the Holy Spirit was um, moving strongly in the family uh, of John the Baptist. Um, but we saw last week the Lord was gracious to Zacharias, answered he and Elizabeth's prayer to uh, have a son, and they told him his name should be called John, and um, and so we um, we saw how even in his unbelief, uh, Zacharias uh, would have his prayers answered and and be very linked to the coming of the Messiah, which is a big deal. So. Zacharias uh, reminded us of his uh, shortcomings and he had to remind himself of his shortcomings for nine months. The angel Gabriel said, man, what's the deal? You don't believe? Because of your unbelief, Zacharias, you're not gonna be able to speak for nine months until the baby comes. Um, Now, I'll show you Wednesday night when we, Lord willing, finish chapter one, I'll show you um, how it might be possible that he not only could not speak, but maybe couldn't hear either. Uh, because they're gonna, the the neighbors are all gonna come over when the baby comes and say, "Oh, you're gonna name him Zachariah," and Elizabeth said, "No, we're gonna name him name him John," and the and all the friends and family they go, "Wait a minute, there's no John in your family. You can name him, His name is Zachariah, right? Zachariah." And they turned to Zachariah, and they they had to signal to him. His name is going to be Zachariah, right? Uh, they had to like signal it to him somehow, and so he wrote down on a piece of paper. So his name's John. Um, And uh, this is kind of, the neighbors are all like, what, this is amazing, and they think this is incredible. Um, Now, we don't think any big deal about that, but in those days, you'd you'd link your son's name somehow to the father, and so it was a little unusual. But at that moment, when Zechariah writes down his name will be John, boom, his voice comes back to him, he can talk. So what's the first words out of Zechariah's mouth after nine months of being mute? not being able to speak a word, um, well, uh, it's actually quite profound what comes out of his mouth. It's, it's, it's actually um, got a name. Uh, there, if you look up this in like Google, uh, the Benedictus. What's the Benedictus? Sounds like a breakfast, eggs Benedictus? Um, I don't know. Uh, no, the Benedictus uh, or otherwise known as the Song of Zacharias. Um, and you could call it a number of things, a song. Some people call it the hymn of Zachary uh, in certain religious circles. Or, um, it's, it's, uh, but it's also known as a prophecy, a word of prophecy given by the Holy Spirit through Zachariah, who is a, a prophet, uh, by the way. Um, and, um, and he's gonna give this long sort of uh, dissertation after he gets his voice back. But I wonder if he took the nine months of silence, to be praying about and thinking about, well, what, what am I gonna say when my, my voice comes back? I don't know if it was that organized or if the Spirit just came upon him and he just started speaking uh, the Benedictus. But what did he speak? Well, as it turns out, it's a very rich and prophetic utterance of what Jesus would do, a little bit about what John the Baptist would do, but mostly about the result of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, and what he was gonna do and I want to kind of camp out on that, um, the Benedictus or the song of Zachary. It's in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 67. It says this, Luke 1, 67. It says, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And there it is, the Benedictus, the Song of Zacharias. It's a profound proclamation of who Jesus would be and also what Jesus would do. you know, uh, and why it would be an important thing for us to know about, to know what was going on. Um, And so, um, you know, everything Zachariah said has proven to be true, by the way, in billions of lives since then, Uh, these profound utterances. Um, Now, before moving on to this song, do you ever wish you were filled with the Holy Spirit, could say something profound? Like that's what happened here. Zacharias is filled with the Holy Ghost, it says that. Uh, verse uh, 67, filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. Well, the truth is you can. Do you know how you can speak things by the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, it turns out it's a lot simpler than you might think. All you gotta do is ask. Well, Brett, I'm not asking for that. Be filled with the Holy Ghost? Well, that means I'll be flopping around in the aisles here at Athe Creek. Or swinging from the chandeliers, or you know, uh, you know, flipping out, or speaking in tongues when I don't at least expect it. Um, well, those are just p- things people do that are wacko. That's not really, see, um, I know that this might offend some of you because you may have gone to some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters churches, and you saw people flopping around in the aisle. Um, The truth is you don't see the flopping around thing in the Bible at all, except for unchristian people, non-believers, like the Romans. uh, I I called the Toronto Blessing guys back in the early 90s, if you know about that whole thing, and I was talking to one of their pastors. So how do you guys um, defend slaying in the spirit? Like uh, when you slay people in the spirit, how do you defend that biblically, you know? And um, the Rodney Howard Brown guys, I was talking to them on the phone. Um, and they said, well, you know, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I am he. And all the Roman soldiers fell over on their back. And see, I have no problem with that. I, that wasn't a church service. There was a bunch of non-believing Romans that the Lord knocked over on their rear end. Can God knock people on their rear end? Yep. And he did that to Paul the apostle. He was also an unbeliever at the time. Um, I have no question God can do that, but we don't make services around that and say, we're gonna flop around in the church. Um, that's, just, that's just not biblical. I know, it, I know some of you said, but, but I was at a church and I fell down once. I'm not doubting that you clumsily, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I'm not doubting that the emotional experience and people doing this stuff, I, I know that stuff happens. It's just not in the Bible. I, I think at Aethy Creek, our goal is to say, how can we be as biblical as possible? And there's plenty of wonderful things the Holy Spirit does that doesn't include swinging from the chandeliers or flopping in the aisle. But one of those most amazing and should be coveted things of the Holy Spirit is to speak a word of prophecy. Now you say, Brad, I thought you said that Jesus declared John the Baptist the last of the prophets. Yes, Jesus did say that. John the Baptist is the last of the prophets But here's the thing. Did you know that the word of prophecy is not retired? Prophets were retired after John, but you can speak a word of prophecy. See, if a guy walks up to you today and says, I'm a prophet of the Lord, you should have a red flag about that. Uh, Because he might think he's a prophet, but he might be giving a word of prophecy. But in 1 Corinthians 16, it makes it really, uh, 14, pardon me, First Corinthians 14, it gives a very strict description of what prophecy in New Testament church age is going to be. It's not telling the future, it's not walking around like a prophet of the Old Testament, but a word of prophecy gives three components. It's a word of edification, exhortation, or comfort. Um, those are the three components. It's not foretelling the, the future, um, but it's giving a word by the Holy Spirit to people about what the Lord's... Uh, gonna do to comfort, edify, and uh, even exhort. Um, And then what's even more funny is it talks about how tongues is the least of all the gifts of the Spirit. Tongues is the least. It's funny how a lot of churches make that the number one. In fact, there's some people that are very misguided saying, unless you're speaking in tongues, you're not even a Christian. Um, That's just ridiculous. Speaking in tongues, Paul says, it's the least of the, but, but he said, I'd rather you speak, you know, just a, you know, a few tiny words of tongues with an interpretation in the church setting, very strict and confined parameters, but thousands of words that are understandable, like a word of prophecy, for example. Paul ended his whole thing setting the parameters in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, he said let all things be done in, uh, decently and in order. There shouldn't be an unruly nature to the church service um, so so, um, so, if somebody were to jump up here at Aether Creek on a Sunday morning, say, I have a word of tongues. And um, the, I'll tell you something, uh, you might wanna watch out for that where our security will be like flies on manure right there. I'm just saying. Uh, no, I'm just, just kidding. I'm joking, sort of. But um, we had a guy a couple weeks ago do that on a 10 o'clock service. Uh, he ran up, I have a word for the Lord. And, and he was uh, high on meth. Uh, that's the problem with that. Um, and, and the Lord, you know, blessed that and everything worked out okay. Um, but, uh, but you don't just jump into a service and cause unruly. See, our, our Baptist brothers, they take that verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 and, say, and they say, um, you know, decently and in an order, which I like the Baptists for that. Uh, let all things be done decently and in an order. But our Pentecostal brothers and sisters are saying, um, let all things be done, literally all, flopping in the aisle or swinging from the chandeliers. Um, And and here's the thing. I I believe the balance. Let all things that are in the Bible, biblical, be done decently in order. That's what that scripture is saying. So don't let the people that have done weird stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit freak you out about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, you know what I love about the Holy Spirit? What's the bird of the Bible that is depicting the Holy Spirit? The dove. Not a screeching eagle. (laughs) Yeah, There's some churches you'd go to, you think, well, that's, that's, that's a screeching eagle or a chicken. Like, you know, it gets weird, but I'm thankful that it's a, that it's a dove and it's a, it's a calming, peaceful, uh, you know, I believe when the spirit of God moves, it's supernaturally natural. It doesn't come off weird and crazy. It comes off very anointed and blessed. And, and really, I think we should all desire to have that in our lives, the power of the Spirit in our lives. And, and you say, well, Brett, well, if it's not flopping around, then what is it? It's the power of God to um, move in you to do stuff that's way past you. That's what, that's what happens here. Um, Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and if you want that, remember what the, later on in Luke, it says in Luke eleven thirteen. 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? shall your heavenly father uh, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. That's all you gotta do, to ask of the Lord. Say, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and move in me in, in your timing, and your plan and purpose. And just by asking, um, the Holy Spirit can stir in your life. The reason I have to talk about this is because this little family here, Elizabeth, Zacharias, and John the Baptist, might just be one of the most spirit-filled families in the Bible. Um, I mean, John the Baptist was filled by the Holy Spirit before he leaves his mother's womb. Um, This is a a radical family, and we're gonna see that on Wednesday night. Even Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, moving mightily through this family. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Spirit would move in you and through you? We need that. Um, I need that. Uh, You and I don't possess enough to be effective Uh, in our own strength. It's not by our might, nor nor is it by our power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is where the the power comes from. So that's just a little sideline thing before we get into the song or the spirit-filled utterance of Zacharias. It's kind of an important thing. Now there's some beautiful pictures uh, of great importance that I'd like to show you in this dissertation. It's a little bit wordy. When you read it here, you're kind of like, man, what's all this about? Well, one thing that it's about, it's about the Jews long-term. The the part of the component of Zechariah's prophecy is targeted to the Jewish people. And you'll see that. And we'll probably talk more about that on Wednesday night, um, how the Jews would ultimately uh, be delivered from their enemies. When you read verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and uh, the hand of all that hate us. Have the Jews been free of all their enemies and the people that hate them? Not any time in history. So we can, we can say, well, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but when will that happen? Anybody? Okay, uh, remember, uh, we gotta, okay, turn to the book of Revelation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, if you recall, at the, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Re, uh, Romans eleven twenty five, 25, it says, then all of Israel shall be saved. That's gonna be during the tribulation period and then the second coming of Christ. In the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes and rules and reigns, man, he's gonna bring in an everlasting peace and righteousness and the Jews will be uh, led by Christ himself from Jerusalem and and the world will be very different in the millennial kingdom. So you might just say the millennial kingdom is when the Jews are gonna see the Prince of Peace, Jesus, come and take charge of this world. That's the second coming of Christ. but one thing that's interesting about Zechariah, it's almost like um, he speaks of the first coming because that's so related to this. He, this is his first coming when he would be born in Bethlehem and Zechariah is gonna talk about his first coming, but that's gonna be mostly related to um, the church age, that part of it where uh, what's Jesus gonna do in his first coming? Um, but Zechariah's gaze goes past even the first coming into the second coming and talks about how the Jews will be free from their enemies and they're gonna be able to serve him without fear with the Jews have never been able to do that uh, because the world has hated them. Uh, We could talk more about that, but I'd like to focus not as much on Zechariah's song as it relates to the second coming, there's components of that, but mostly as it relates to the first coming and how it relates to you and me, the church of Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look. There's four snapshots I'd like to show you. The first snapshot here, or a beautiful picture in this, is the opening of a prison door. And the key word in this one, each one is gonna have a key word that I want you to know in this uh, song of Zacharias. And the word is redemption, redemption. We see that in the very first part of his utterance. He says that in verse 68. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Um, I like how Zacharias, he's talking about this as if it's a done deal. It's as good as done. He's speaking prophetically that even as Mary is now pregnant with Jesus, um, the Lord has visited his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's going to be seen through the person and the work of Jesus, <clears throat> that God visited humanity. Um, and the key word is redemption, where it says, he, have, he uh, visited us and redeemed his people. And that's the word that's in the Bible a lot, the word about you know redemption. Um, what does redemption mean? It means to purchase or buy. In fact, if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Um, This is the word redemption. Um, You know, the the Greek word redeem is lutrosis, which means a ransom that's paid or redemption, uh, deliverance from the penalty to be set free by paying a price. That's the Greek word that's used here. For the Lord has um, redeemed his people. This is what our scripture tells us. How did he um, visit? He came, he died, he rose, he ascended. That was his visitation. But uh, his redemption is, you know, we sold our, ourselves out to sin. All of humanity, we've all sinned. We, we owe a debt that is bigger than we can afford because the debt you and I owe for our sin is eternal death and hell. But praise be to the Lord, he bought us, redeemed us, he redeemed his people. You want to know, uh, you remember how I always talk about the Old Testament is so key to understanding the New Testament? Um, Part of the reason that's so important to know the Old Testament is because the Old Testament's full of pictures that just give us the beautiful portrait of New Testament truth. Um, And without the Old Testament, I think we miss some of the nuances of the New Testament. You gotta couple the two together very carefully and make the study of the whole Bible part of the deal. Probably the best picture that I can think of of redemption in the Old Testament is a beautiful story. And and I'm not a tearful guy, generally. I'm not easily brought to tears, but there's a story in the Bible that almost every time I read it, I have to confess, it brings me to tears. It's the story of Hosea, the prophet. Um, It's an amazing little story, the book of Hosea. If you haven't read the book of Hosea, man, that'd be a good assignment for you this week. Um, You can read it fairly quickly. It's quite a story, but in a nutshell, Hosea the prophet, up, up, upright, you know, outstanding prophet of the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, Hosea, I, I got an assignment for you. Yeah, okay, Lord, sign me up, ready to go. See that prostitute over on the corner over there? Uh, yeah, I want you to marry her. Go ask her for your the, the, you know, hand in marriage kind of thing. So he marries the prostitute named Gomer. Well, golly. Uh, now that's, I'm oh, sorry, if you know Andy Griffith. No, not that Gomer. Um, but no, Gomer is this prostitute and you know she's a desirable, beautiful woman who's a prostitute and Hosea marries her. And then you know, he takes care of her and gives her a nice home and, and suddenly she's you know, off the streets and she's doing uh, well. But Ho- Hosea's is shocked when Gomer goes off and goes back to prostitution. And she continues to prostitute herself in the community. And everybody knows that's Hosea's wife, that lady that's uh, street walking. Um, and, and she'd make her money that way. And, and then you know, she, you know Hosea would take her back and she'd be there for 10 minutes and then go out and prostitute again and commit adultery openly in all the community. And then the Lord said, Hosea, I want you to tell Israel, even as your wife, Gomer, has been unfaithful and the adulterous woman to you, so too Israel has been the prostitute to me. Um, see, in the Old Testament, the Jews are called the wife of God. In the New Testament, you and I, the church, we're called the bride of Christ. But in the Old Testament, the Jews were to called the wife of God. And God uses that analogy saying, as my wife, Israel has been a prostitute and Hosea and Gomer, their little marriage there, that's an illustration of what you. You see, the Jews had prostituted themselves worshiping other gods and goddesses. Chemosh, Moloch, Ashtoreth, all the gods of the pagans, uh, the Jews had prostituted themselves. And this was supposed to be a living illustration. Poor poor Hosea, man, that's a tough day at the office. But it gets worse. Gomer continues to do this year after year. And and eventually she, she just keeps doing it. And she ultimately leaves him really altogether and goes back to her prostitution. But the problem is she's a big spender And she goes into debt and then she starts getting older and older and more decrepit and the price of prostitution catches up to her. And now she's a wreck, undesirable. Nobody wants her anymore, but she owes a ton of money. And so what do you do? In Bible times, you couldn't just file chapter 11. They didn't have that. They had two options. You either go to the debtor's prison or they sell you as a slave when you're in debt and you owe money. Well, that's what happened to Gomer. They took Gomer put her on the slave market right in the center of town where all the slaves were being sold. Um, most scholars that know history, the, the way they would do it is strip a person down naked and make them stand in front of the whole crowd and say, here's a good slave, you know, got a few years left in her, you know, this is the old gal. Um, who wants her? And you know, there it is, crickets. Nobody wants to buy Gomer and, she, and she's, this, she's an old washed up has-been and the Lord whispers in Hosea's ear, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to purchase your wife back, pay the price for her slavery and uh, save her from that. Are you sure, Lord? I, I, can you imagine Hosea, I think, oh Lord, she's been so unfaithful and you want me to do what? She's kind of getting what she deserves, hello. But the Lord says, this is the illustration. I want Israel to know, even though Israel's prostituted themselves and been horrible to me, their God, I want to know them to know that I will redeem them. I will purchase them back out of their slavery um, so that they might be saved. And it's this really touching, amazing story of God's redemption toward Israel. And it's a beautiful story of the redemption that God has toward you. See, you and I, we're the gomer in the story We're the ones who've sinned. We've sinned against the Lord. All of our sin is gross and stinky and it gets uglier the older we get. And pretty soon we end up in a total mess and we wonder why are things so bad in my life? It's because of our own sinfulness. Um, That's where sin leads. Sin always leads to sorrow. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a short season. The Bible admits that, but ultimately it leads you down and out and in big trouble with no hope apart from God who's redemptive I love the story of redemption, um, you know, and, and that's why God, he loves us. You know, it says, but God, Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that means in the middle of our sin, Christ died for us, paying our price. Um, the idea of redemption is all throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter one, verse four says, according as he hath chosen us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Man, I hope this hasn't become so common to some of you old-timer Christians. You're kind of like, oh yeah, redemption through the blood, blah, 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 blood of Jesus, cleanses my sins, not the blood, of blood. like Like I, I worry that sometimes we as Christians just become sort of jaded even toward this most tear-jerking of events, that we were the gomer at the slave block being sold to our own depravity. But the Lord says, but I loved you so much that I sent my only begotten son to redeem you, to purchase you back. The price wasn't just silver or gold, it was a price that is incalculable, the blood of Jesus Christ, to the forgiveness of sin according to his riches. So the redemption was through his blood. The price was paid so we could get out of the jail cell of sin and death and hell. And so that's really why we look at the point number one, you know, this idea that we've been purchased. One old pastor was, walking down in front of his church uh, one Saturday afternoon. And um, there was a little boy carrying this old bird cage and these little you know, birds that he had caught. And he, and he thought, that's odd. you know, and the pastor. said, Hey son, where'd you get those birds? I trapped them. Um, well, what are you gonna do with them? And the kid said, yeah, I'll probably take them home and um, play with them a little bit and then maybe feed them to my cat. Um, And the pastor just kind of chuckled, but he said, man, Um, he said, I'll buy those birds from you and the old cage there. Why would you want this old cage and these birds? They're worthless. He said, no, I'll pay you $2. Um, And the little kid's like, okay, you're lost, buddy. And so he took took the the shiny coins and walked away happily. Um, But the pastor then took the little old cage and the birds out behind the church and opened up the cage and let the little birds fly off free. He brought the cage into the church service and sat it up on the pulpit that Sunday morning. And he told the story of redemption, how the birds were headed for the, the cat, but he uh, saved them. Uh, you know, that's, that's the story of you. You and I are headed for the big cat. Satan is a roaring lion who's, who's seeking who he may devour. And he's pretty good at devouring, but you've been purchased by the Lord who paid the price so that he would set you free out of the prison doors. This is the beautiful part of what we're talking about here. So the opening of a prison door, operative word, redemption. That's the first picture of this beautiful dissertation. Number two, winning the battle. Um, And the operative word is power. I might be tempted to call it not power, but the horn. Why would you say horn? Uh, Because of the text, look at verse 69. It says, and he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, um, you say, Brett, uh, what's the horn of salvation? If you're into the Bible, one of the things that's hard for us in modern times to get our brain around is what the horn is a type or symbol of, Uh, like the horn on your car. Nope. Uh, Like a horn on a band. Nope. It's the horn of a bull. Now, if you're in Bible times and you wanted to depict something that would be a type of power, what would you choose? Um, Because it's kind of hard to find something. You know, it's not like you could say, you know, like a nuclear bomb, powerful, boom. Or, you know, it'd be hard to come up with something. But um, if you've been around bulls, which I have when I was a kid growing up, um, bulls have an amazing amount of power and strength. Uh, These guys that do the running of the bulls, Uh, They're nuts in Spain. Have you guys ever watched the running of the bulls? And you can, you know, it's one thing to go to a rodeo and you know, these guys, but these guys are running down the street uh, and these bulls literally stick them through. Um, I could have showed you some really ugly pictures of bulls that, uh, well, the runner just got the point if you know what I'm saying. Uh, not to, bel- bel- to labor this point, but um, you know, this is a bull, uh, the running of the bulls that caught up with a car uh, and just didn't like this particular car for some reason. Um, but it starts to make you realize, okay, you know, uh, that's not so good on that little, that little car there. Um, he gets particularly perturbed, the tires now popped. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, look at that. Um, that would hurt, that would hurt. Um, but see, in Bible times, if this is the, this is what, when when when, <laughs> there it is. I'm sorry. Um, in Bible times, you know, when you think of something that's powerful, this is what your mind would go to, uh, because there wasn't a lot of modern kind of power, earth movers and bulldozers and stuff like that. But the horn was feared by all of the of the bull, and so throughout the Bible, the horn would be a symbol of power. So when this reference here is the horn of salvation, it's talking about the power to save. Does anybody remember in the tabernacle, you'd walk into the outer gate there of the outer courtyard and the first thing you'd see is the brazen altar, um, the brass altar. Does anybody remember what what was on the four corners of the altar, anybody? There was a horn. When uh, we go to Israel, uh, we have a long journey between Elat and back up to Jerusalem. Um, but on the way, we're out in the middle of the wilderness, somewhat where the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And we stopped at a little place called um, um, uh, Timnah. And it's, it's a place where they have a life-size um, uh, uh, tabernacle. that You can go and see it, like to scale, everything built to scale. Well, when last time I was there, uh, we got this little shot here. This is me. <laughs> And what am I doing? Anybody? Removing the horn from the altar? Uh, no, I'm, I'm clinging to the horn of the altar. Here's, here's what they used to do in Bible times. If you were out you know, cutting trees down in the woods with your buddy and a tree that you cut fell on your buddy and it killed him, that would be manslaughter. And in biblical law, you, you, you as a family member of the person who died, it was your duty to kill the other guy who killed you by the tree falling. Yeah, but it was a manslaughter thing. It wasn't his fault really. It was was his fault and he was worthy of death at that point. Unless, if you know your Bible story, that man who was guilty of manslaughter runs (laughs) to the tabernacle. And he goes and grabs the horn. Remember when you played uh, free bass uh, in uh, tag when you were little kids and you'd run and touch the free bass? You're like, ha ha, I made it to free bass. You can do nothing against me. Remember your buddies that would always make new free basses everywhere? Oh, here's a tree free bass. Uh, You know, that was not the case. There was only one free bass in Israel and that was the horns of the altar at the tabernacle. And if you grabbed the horn of the altar, you were good. The priest would come and uh, absolve you from whatever guilt you had of the manslaughter. And if the priest freed you there, you'd be free to go and nobody could touch you. Um, And why is it that there were horns on the corners of the altar? The answer is the, the, the blood sacrifice that was made on that altar was powerful enough to forgive you of your sins, to absolve you from your sins. And that's why this horn of power is talked about. So we've got here the winning of the battle um, and the power. And we see that in verse 69, he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The horn of salvation is Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. And by the way, this idea of Jesus being the horn himself is all throughout the Bible. I'm just giving you some freebies here. If you want to study the Bible and kind of know some of the nuances, um, like you might miss it in Psalm. Uh, when Psalm 132 uh, says this, it says, um, "There there. Will I make the horn of David to bud the horn of David?" Um, This is of the line of David. There will I make the horn of David to bud, come to life. And I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. This is a a messianic psalm about the horn, the power of David. Jesus, remember they said, Jesus, thou son of David. Jesus was in line for the throne of David, uh, fulfilling Bible prophecy, but he has the, the power to save. Winning the battle uh, through his power to save. Um, by the way, there's a couple of things about this that's, that's so important. Um, the power to save, you say, okay, so the Lord won the battle, uh, winning of the battle through his power to save. Um, but why is the winning of that battle so important? Well, there's two reasons. One, so you don't go to hell. That's a good thing, wouldn't you say? That's a good thing that Jesus was powerful enough to save you from the fires of hell, and me too. Praise the Lord for that. But there's another nuance here in our text, uh, if you'll notice, uh, it says in verse 74, that, verse 74, he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life to serve without fear, and to serve in righteousness and holiness. Um, He's mighty to save, powerful, the horn of our salvation, to save us from hell, but also that we can serve him without fear, like that a bolt of lightning will come and strike us down. Uh, Some of you wrestle with this. Some of you know you're a sinner, and you you know that you've erred, and, and you've made mistakes, and Satan is accusing you day and night, saying, who do you think you are? Call yourself a Christian, and you're a sinner. Um, and you wanna serve the Lord, you wanna to go to Athe Creek and volunteer as a volunteer, but you're a sinner. What if Athe Creek finds out you're a sinner? Uh, well, guess what? Uh, we already know you're a sinner. Because uh, you, 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 all of us are sinners. We all fall short. We all are uh, messed up. But I love that the power to not only save us from the fire of hell, but the power to save us from the fear that comes when you wanna serve the Lord. That's what it says here. Um, it reminds me of the song we sang earlier in worship coming from Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, "'Having therefore, brethren, boldness "'to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, um, "'by a new and living way, "'which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, "'that is to say, his flesh, "'and having a high priest over the house of God, "'let us draw near with a true heart "'in full assurance of faith, "'having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience "'and our bodies washed with pure water.'" Um, you know, there's a lot of times I think people listen to the enemy, the accuser, and say, oh, I'm not good enough to go into the presence of God and go to church on Sunday. Um, you know, uh, this is what happens. Maybe uh, uh, just pretend here for a second. Maybe some of you were partying pretty hard last night. Saturday night, man, got a little away from you. Um, and, and, and the problem is, some, there's probably some people that were planning on coming to church this morning, but they thought, you know, I'm just not good enough to go to church. I've failed, um, you know, but guess what? If you partied down last night, the best thing you could do is get back and right with the Lord and confess your sin and come clean before him and repent and come to church. Church is a place where sinners go. Don't let the world askew that whole discussion. Well, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. You're all sinners and you come into church and here's the false um, narrative, and you all think you're perfect. Well, thats I've never met a Christian who thinks they're perfect. The Christians I know, we all know we're totally messed up sinners and we're trying to do our best to follow the Lord. But like you, non-Christian, we fail all the time. But um, we're thankful that the Lord's mercy, well, how long does his mercy endure? Forever. Um, you know, you, you know. it's funny how, he, 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 does the Lord still love us? Um, now, don't forget, there's still repercussions for sin. This is where people get freaked out. Brett, you're just giving people a license to party down Saturday night. And then come to church on Sunday. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. Why why did I not say that? Well, it's it's not. Remember, it's that whole thing. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Um, You know, people get this all messed up that you have to get really clean and good and be perfect, and then the Lord will allow you to come and you know go to church and stuff. No, you go to church because you need help and you need to be built up in faith. Um, You know, uh, after a night of hard partying, that's hard. That lifestyle is hard. Just ask this guy, who was caught on the Google um, Street View. Uh, this is always good for uh, whenever the Google Street View drives by your house, has a little 360 camera. Let's hope you're in good standing with what's, whatever's going on when that car drives by. This guy, this year, he was uh, he was caught in in front of his house in London. Um, (Laughter) <laughs> Local newspapers found this guy on Street View and said, uh, they interviewed this guy. And he said, well, I was at a party. I admit, I drank way too much, more than I should have. My friend said I shouldn't get on my wired donkey. I guess that's what they call it, a bicycle in London or England. Um, but I got on it anyway, and I fell down after two turns. Uh, but this is where the guy woke up in the morning. Um, rough night, see, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It messes you up. Waking up on the street uh, totally wiped out is not really our life goal. And, and sin messes you up and hurts you. Where should this guy the, go the next morning? It'd be really good if he found a good church, repented of his sin and uh, started walking with the Lord. And even this guy would be welcome at AC Creek at any time. Uh, the reason I say that is because we gotta get this idea that you have to be perfect before you go to the church. Um, no, you come to church because good news, Jesus paid the price for our sins, and, um, and, and not only that, when you know that you've been forgiven and the battle has been won against your sins, it, it, and you really understand his redemptive love, it makes you not wanna go sin anymore. It's his kindness that leads men to repentance. That's what the Bible says. So you say, Brett, you're just saying you could party down and then go to church. No, I'm saying, like Paul said, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? He says, God forbid but it's the Lord's goodness, his kindness that will lead you to true repentance. And that's what it said here in our text. He said, you can serve him without fear. And verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. There's something about knowing the redemptive work that he paid our price, um, that the Lord says in Hebrews 8:12, 12, I will be you know, merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Um, which will make you want to do well. You dieters know what I'm talking about. If you've had to diet, um, you skinny people, you can check out here for a second. Um, but you know that, you know, you're doing really good. You wake up in the morning and you have your nuts and twigs and stuff and, and you eat your, you know, kale leaf for lunch and stuff and you're just doing really, really good and, and then somebody invites you over to their house for dinner and you go over there and they're having fried chicken and mashed potatoes smothered in butter and just the delicious fatty foods and, and then for dessert, apple pie with a big pile of ice cream, you know, on top and you're just like, oh man, I totally blew my diet. Bummer. And on your way home, you're like, you know, I blew it so bad, I might as well just go through the Taco Bell drive-thru on the way home. I mean, it's like, you know what I'm talking about? Once you've blown it, you know, you're like, I'm already, I'm already messed up, you know? And I know that's not the healthy way to think, but um, uh, this sounds a little personal, um, yeah. Um, but, 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 you know, Satan wants to do that with your sin. Well, I've already sinned, I've already done this, and I've already done that, and so, you know, why not just sin it up a little more But see, this is the problem. When we feel like we're all dirty and filthy in our sin, um, you won't care about jumping into the mud again. But when you know that you've been redeemed and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and the price was paid, and you really start to understand his redemptive work, it'll give you that new hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, To know that he's already cleansed you and washed you, um, and he's mighty, he's powerful to save. One more scripture before we move on to the next one. That's Zephaniah 317. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What makes the Lord sing? Um, His mightiness and his ability to save you and me from our sins. He'll rejoice over you with his love. He will rest in his love. What a great thing. Well, number one, opening the prison door. Key word is what? Redemption. The winning of the battle. Key word is? Power. power. Number three, the canceling of a debt. Key word, remission. But isn't this the same as point number one? um, Canceling a debt? Oh, it's different. There's, There's two words that this little guy, Zacharias, employs that are close but different. Redemption versus remission. Look at verse 76. And he says, thou child, speaking of his son, John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. What's the difference between you know, remission of sin um, versus this idea of redemption? Uh, The idea is redemption is the price paid to get out of jail. Um, Remission is your sins are completely taken away, never to be seen again. Um, It's a little bit like the word we use in modern times. uh, It's one of the few places we use the word remission in modern times. When you're talking of someone who has cancer, and if they say, my cancer is in remission, you say, oh, that's good. Which means there's no sign. The cancer is seemingly gone, which is good news to a person with cancer to hear, I'm in remission. But in the, in the biblical sense of remission, it's even more powerful. The Greek word is aphasis, is the Greek word that means to release completely from bondage or imprisonment, um, forgiveness or pardon, letting people go as if they had not been committed. Now the entomology of this word uh, aphasis is interesting. It comes from uh, aphiemi, which means um, to send away completely, to let go. Uh, The second one, to leave, to go to a whole new place. Um, Now, this is an interesting thing because I gave you a picture of redemption through the story of Hosea, the prophet, and Gomer. But remission is a harder one to find, but it is in there, and it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Redemption and remission is pictured in the Levitical law and the priestly acts of, of what the people would do with their sins with Aaron, the high priest. Um, I don't wanna get too much into the detail of this, but it is kind of interesting. It's Leviticus chapter 16, verses seven through 10. Uh, Have you ever heard of the term scapegoat? It's a term we still use today. It comes from ancient biblical literature, uh, the book of Leviticus, scapegoat, it's it's this. And he, uh, Aaron, the priest, shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, so one's the Lord's goat, and, um, and uh, the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which is the Lord's lot, uh, Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. That means to butcher him, sacrifice him on an altar. Um, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And they literally would do this And there's more biblical uh, writing about this. In fact, um, the people who were sinful and Aaron the priest would put their hands on the head of the scapegoat, sort of implying a transferring of their own sins onto that goat. He's the scapegoat. And they're gonna let, what what do they do with the scapegoat? They let him go and he wanders off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. But without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, if you know your Bible. True, that's why there's one goat that's offered as a blood offering. Uh, That's the Lord's goat, even as the Lord himself became our sacrifice. John the Baptist would say, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's the sacrificial lamb, Jesus. He was the blood sacrifice, but guess what? The scapegoat is the one that takes the the, the sins of the people and wanders off never to be seen again. Um, This is the one goat sacrificed, one goat let loose in the wilderness. Goat number one represents redemption, blood price paid in full. Goat number two represents remission of sin, that uh, your sins will be done away with, never to be uh, seen again. It's linked to the New Testament doctrine of justification, by the way, the idea of remission of sins. I'm so thankful the Lord has that forgetfulness He's one of his superpowers. You don't have that superpower. You remember people's sins that they've sinned against you. But the Lord remembers our sins no more. In fact, Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Job chapter 14, verse 17, my transgression is sealed up. In a bag, and thou sowest mine iniquity. It's like in a bag, sewed up. Well, Brad, I don't know if I like that one. Well, what does he do with the bag? Well, just ask Micah, the prophet, Micah 7, 19. He will turn again, and he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You see, this is what the Lord does for us. He does away. That's the remission of sin, So number three, the canceling of debt, um, the remission of sin. Remission is the key word. Number four, finally, the dawning of a new day. Keyword: word, day spring. Brett, that sounds like a addiction recovery place. Maybe it is, I don't know, it sounds that way, but that's not what it's about. The day spring speaks of a dawning of a new day, um, sunrise. Uh, in fact, the, the, we see it in our text here in verse 78. Um, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness, the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is such a glorious part. Um, the dawning of a new day, newness of life. Old things are passed away. All things become new. That's the notion that the Bible talks about what, the, what Jesus would do. He'd give us a fresh, clean, new slate. The, the morning comes. And, and you know, what does the Bible say about the morning? Man, it's, it's, it's new. It's a newness. Um, by the way, this idea of dayspring, the word dayspring, uh, again, the Greek word is anatole, which means the rising of the sun, dawn, sunrise, or the light rising. Um, I love Lamentations, chapter three, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. Well, that's what we deserve, to be consumed. Um, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, while I hope in him, the Lord is good to them that wait for him, um, to the soul that seeketh him. Uh, the newness of, of being a Christian. Christ. Brought us that newness of life. So these are the four operative words of Zacharias' most beautiful prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus, who's in Mary's womb as he's speaking these words, and he's coming to be redemptive, having the power to save, giving remission for sin, and the dayspring of newness of life. These are the glorious things Jesus would bring. And this little prophet, Zacharias, utters these most profound truths Christ bought us back redemptively, um, was powerful and was mighty to save powerfully and um, would not remember our failures and sins, but do away with them, remission of sin. And then we have old things pass away, all things become new, the day spring. And this is what we see here. Who would reject such a glorious Messiah? It's amazing to me that there's people in the world today that say, yeah, Jesus is good for you, whatever, but uh, yeah, I'm not gonna follow Christian theology, why wouldn't somebody want redemption? Power to save you out of the fires of hell and to have remission for your sins to be done away with. This is the only source you can get these things. You can't have forgiveness of sin from any other source in the world. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, if you've not accepted Christ, you are still in your sin according to the Bible and you know what's funny? I think a lot of you know that already according to your own heart. Because some of you think, well, I'm good enough, you know, but you know in your heart, in the depths of your heart, because the Lord gave you a, what I call a knower. Some people call it a conscience. But in your little knower, you know that you don't measure up. You know that your sins are there. Um, and if you wanna have your conscience free, you have to go through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He's the truth and he's the life. All of this is what Zacharias, the prophet, um, spoke powerfully that day. Would you bow your heads, please? And um, Christians, would you be in prayer and just be readying your heart to go to the table of communion? Um, If you're not a Christian, right now you can fix that. And the reason it's so easily done here and now is because he did all the work there and then when he went and died on the cross for your sins. What's required of you, according to the scriptures, Romans 10, verse nine and 10 is, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, it declares there, you will be saved. Um, And that's what is required of you to say, Lord, I I recognize I'm a sinner and I repent. That means to change your mind, repent of my sins, and I give my heart to you. And if, if that's you, just do that right now. Just pray that prayer, Lord, I believe in you that you died on the cross that Jesus came and rose from the grave and that I'm forgiven of my sins and I receive that redemption. I receive the remission of sin and I want that newness of life. Just ask the Lord for that right here, right now.